I'm excited to open God's Word again, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, where we are kind of plodding through uh, several, several themes that Christ captures in his final lap of his sermon. It's several themes that really come down to one thing, which is you're either siding with Christ or you're siding with anything or anyone else. You're siding with the world. You're siding with your flesh, the devil. You're either over there or you're with Christ. It's one or the other. And the theme of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount is that Christianity is binary. It's, it's one or the other in terms of your spiritual condition. You're either someone who is coming under the headship and lordship of Jesus Christ, or you, you are still under the lordship and headship of the Adamic race or Satan himself. You're either alive or you're dead. You're either with Christ or you're against Christ. And he is, Jesus is driving for a decision by giving these different topics, these different ways at getting at that single idea of there is a crossroads that he has made. You're either in or you're out. You're either inside the household of God or you're outside of his household. And you need to understand that. He's preaching to disciples. He's preaching to religious leaders who are really living a facade, and he's, he's trying to pierce the void in those who are churched and those who think they're churched and those who are onlookers. And he's saying, examine yourself. Think about where you are. In 1 John 2.19, it, it says that it, it became plain to all. It became plain that they are not of us because they went out from us. So the, there's a plain understanding between where you are spiritually if you'll just ask yourself and think about it. And the way that I've been kind of making that practical in terms of your Christian experience when you come to church, do you come as a worshiper or do you come as a consumer? Do you come as someone who is a customer um, checkboxing that you came and evaluating how things are going here? Or are you coming as someone who is here to offer a sacrifice of praise and worship to the Lord? So with those things in mind, I, I think it's important to, uh, to, to look at a text like this. And I'm really breaking it down into five different categories. And we covered the first two. Do you love like Jesus? Verse 12. Do you lead yourself to Jesus? Verses 13 and 14. Which road are you on? And then um, we're going to see verses 15 through 20. Are you someone that learns from Jesus? And then next week, verses 21, 20 through 23. Do you live for Jesus? And then finally, verses 24 to 27. Do you listen to Jesus? Do you love, lead, learn, live, and listen to Jesus? Where, where are you spiritually is the question. It's really the, the two roads, right? The wide road that leads to destruction, which is 8 billion people are on this road. If I can round up, 8 billion people have decided the wide road. They're on the five freeway. They're mindlessly driving. They're not thinking about what's going on. They're exceeding the speed limit and they're heading off a cliff to an eternal abyss in hell? Or are you on the narrow road, which is really um, thread-like thin road going up to heaven that the, the believers through the ages have traveled all the way to heaven? You're on one road or the other. And in particular, verses 15 to 20 is Jesus' way of saying, if you are on that narrow road, 
If you are traveling that way, then you're able to listen to Jesus. You can hear from God. You can discern reality. You can see truth. You can see the difference between truth and error in the world and within even the church. So listen with those things in mind as I read verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. So this is the third way that you can understand which side you are on. Are you on the side of Jesus? Well, verses 15 through 20 is asking that question. Do you discern between truth and error? Are you able to discern when someone is speaking as if for God, but not really from God? Are you able to see a wolf in sheep's clothing at church? That's what this is about. Can you discern what's going on by someone's fruit? A false teacher is really one of the most dangerous people on the planet. And this is the stakes, that, the high stakes that Jesus is talking about here. When we're talking about discernment or hearing from God and being able to see between things, we're not talking about just evaluating where someone is in terms of the growth curve of their spiritual life. We're not talking about, you know, I'm not judgmental, I'm a fruit inspector. I'm just checking out your life or not. That's not what we're talking about. You've heard that before. What, what, you're ta- what we're talking about is discerning between someone who is saved and someone who is a, a Satan-inspired false teacher in the church. Between a sheep and someone who is trying to bring harm to families within the body of Christ. That's where the stakes are. That's how, that's how thin the air is with a text like this. This is not just, you know, I can kind of see the fruit of the Spirit in your life or not, and I'm talking to you. No, this is being a discerner with a battle that is going on. It's being awakened to this. The wide road that leads to destruction has nothing to do with this kind of discernment. This is not a casual tone that Jesus is taking. This is the tone of Paul and Peter where it's be alert, be sober. It's the same word that's used over and over again in the New Testament that's used here. Beware of false prophets, meaning get your head up, look around because false prophets come in and they mess with people's minds. They mess with people's thinking. They twist truth. They add a little bit or take a little bit away. They turn the knob one way or the other to get people off course. They turn the wheel one tick to the left or to the right to send the trajectory on a path of destruction. They take your kids. It's like satanic assassins coming in to the church to take away your kids from you spiritually and lead them to destruction and lead them to eternal hell. There are dangerous people out there. There's dangerous people that I've seen in Anchorage, even dangerous people that have physically and verbally threatened my own children. I'm not kidding. 
I've had my kids chased um, by, you know, car, people in cars and screamed at and um, stalked. I've, I've had these different things happen. Terrifying. And that's in our neighborhood, like around here. This is a dangerous place. But what's more dangerous than physical harm is spiritual harm. And that's hard for us to grasp and understand. But we have to understand things in view of heaven and hell, eternal heaven and eternal damnation. I remember there was a person who called my oldest who was still in high school or, you know, coming out of junior high, going into high school. And she had taken a survey uh, just online as part of a class assignment, but it it had triggered um, something with the um, Christian science cult. So the Christian scientists were calling our phone. And we're saying, you know, we want, we want to talk to your daughter because she's registered for this survey and da-da-da-da-da. We'd love to have her come by and get the results at the, uh, at the temple or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, call me again and I'm calling the cops. Now, I, whether they would have done anything with that or not, I don't know. But I, I wanted the warning of the police on that kind of call because that's endangering a child's soul. False doctrine is potent. It's poisonous and powerful. It it interrupts families, it interrupts life, and it's very powerful. Seven billion, eight hundred million people are under that kind of seduction and influence. It influences how people think about their lives and everything that's going on about them. What does this look like? Well, it looks like wolves in sheep's clothing. Look at this. Beware of false prophets, verse 15, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. The picture here is someone showing up who looks completely harmless, who is trying to destroy you. It's a charlatan. Different than verse 6 earlier where you have the pigs and the dogs, don't cast your pearls before swine. You see those coming a long way away, right? But these are wolves, but these are wolves that are dressed up, that, that don't look like a wolf, okay? They're, they're fluffy sheep. You go, well, have you ever been to a petting zoo? I have. I, I, you know, would bring my kids to the zoo all the time and, you know, do the thing. But those sheep and goats, those are dirty animals, right? You know, you're just kind of like enduring that and, and dodging poop. I, I went on a missions trip to New Zealand uh, one time and I actually 20 some years ago, like this go team that's here with Alaska, I went on one of those to New Zealand and, you know, the, the harvesting of the wool is the thing there and the sheep flocks are beautiful and they're immaculate and, and fluffy and white and they take the little lamb and put it on you. And I mean, it rivals any puppy experience you ever had. I mean, the sheep are awesome, you know, and that's what's coming in and it's, it's giving half-truths, twisted truths that taste so good and, and they help you have it both ways. You can have Jesus and all your security, but you can do other things that are off book or different than you thought you could. And they seduce you and, and, and they are ravenous, which that word means to eat you up. They want to destroy. It also can be translated as the word swindle or swindling. They're trying to swindle you out of your faith. And in particular, those who are vulnerable in the church that they can prey upon. This is what we face in the church. Satan's emissaries, they come as an angel of light. Look at Acts 20, if you want to turn over there. Acts 20, verse 28. Same wording here. This is Paul. Um, Luke wrote the book of Acts, but this is Paul's testimony. He's with the elders. 
who were from Ephesus. So it's the book of Ephesians. Those elders are gathering around Paul because they're in this port city called Miletus and Paul's getting ready to go to Rome and Agabus and others have, he basically knows um, through New Testament prophecy that he's going to go and be in chains and never see these people again. So that's the, that's what's happening. And we know that in Canada and other places around the world, people get takeaway in bonds and you don't know what's going to happen. We know people die physical death. And, and, you know, this is the drama. And the, so what Paul is saying to them, this is the final thing he's saying to them. Like Jesus in his sermon, this is the final stuff Jesus is saying. So we should pay attention. And in particular, Paul says, pay careful attention. It's the same wording that Jesus uses, exact same verbiage. It's, um, look, beware, beware to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, here it is, fierce wolves will come in among you. He knows it, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Could be that some of the wolves were already there gathered around Paul. Don't know. Could be those who join leadership, those who prop themselves up. All of Second Corinthians is about wolves that are terrorizing the church and dividing the church of Corinth and undermining Paul and his testimony to discredit the messenger so that you can discredit the what? The message, right? That's the strategy. And that's what he's warning them that they are going to face. Men, they will arise, verse 30, speaking twisted things, not whole truths, but twisted half-truths to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, different verb here, be alert, same idea, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night and day to admonish you with tears. He goes on, and what he does from verses 32 to 35 is just, he basically is bringing up the accusations that are being made against Paul And he's comforting them and reassuring them that he's not the false prophet they are or they will be. There are accusations. Look at verse 32. You've heard these kinds of accusations before. Now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. So they're accusing him of coveting. They're accusing him of having a wrong motive for gospel work. Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. He was a bivocational pastor and he's saying, look, you know, I wasn't in it for the money. I have a good work ethic. I have um, integrity in my business, in my life. Verse 35, in all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help weak Help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, more blessed to give than receive. He's saying, beware. Beware of this satanic method to discredit the messenger so as to dismiss the message. If they can't twist the message, they'll go after the messenger every time. Every time. That's what Satan wants to do. It's his strategy. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, they're false prophets that arose among the people. They come from the inside. They're not really from the outside. They're from the inside. This isn't... By the way, talking about those who are like YouTube, like headhunters, who are heresy hunters, who see the things that are very obviously wrong in the church. These these are subtle attacks. These are attacks that come from the inside to make you mistrust church, to make you mistrust the word of God. What are their motives? Well, they, they secretly bring in destructive heresies, denying the master who bought 
them, which means in this context created them. They're denying God. They're sensual. Second Peter 2, verse 14, blasphemous, greedy, irrational. They have eyes full of adultery, so they don't have any integrity. They don't have any life in them, and they're lustful, and they are greedy, and they are those who entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, and they come disguised. Second Corinthians 11, the word disguised is used over and over. For such men are false apostles, verse 13, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as the the apostles of Christ. No wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And their disguise is so good that they pull off all kinds of weird things. People will find themselves following as the herd is following a false leader and Paul is using sarcasm to try to snap them out of it. Verse 19, for you gladly bear with fools. You're bearing with these people, being wise yourselves. Verse 20, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, legalism, or devours you, destroys your heart, discourages you, wrecks whole families, takes advantage of you, steals your money, right? Or puts on airs. They're so arrogant, flaunting their own self-righteousness or strikes you in the face, even physical harm. Who are they? Philippians 3.18. It says that, you know, even with tears, Paul um, warned them that they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Philippians 3.18. Verse 19, their end is destruction. Listen to this phrase. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. It's consumerism. A false teacher will be a consumer. They're all about them. And guess what they're consuming? They're consuming themselves with their own pride and their own ego. That's what this kind of wolf is. Their minds are set on earthly things. Did they set out to be this way? Well, the Bible, Paul actually says they didn't. He he points to them as those who made shipwreck of their faith. From 1 Timothy 1.19, by rejecting this. Um, the faith and a good conscience by rejecting that some have made shipwreck of their faith. They didn't start out that way. They just got off course one tick of the wheel by one degree and it just sent them off course among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. He's praying that these, these two would repent, but he's calling them out. They've made shipwreck of their faith. First Timothy four, one through four. Here's spiritual warfare. They're teaching deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, the doctrines of demons. In the latter time, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful, lying, teaching that lies and teaching that is from Satan himself. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, they harden their hearts. And they, you know, it says they were forbidding marriage and abstaining from foods and things. They were, they were importing a false gospel and legalism to control the church. A false teacher, a good word for recognizing them, they are controllers, controllers, controlling people. Second Timothy 3, um, 6, it says, for among them, those who, listen to this word, creep into households. They insinuate in, they creep in. It's the same um, word idea that Jesus was using when he says they come in, they come to you in sheep's clothing. The word come there is a middle passive. They insinuate by stealth in. They sneak in. A wolf, you can see, you know, that coming. I've been down to the um, Alaska 
conserv- conservatory, you know, where you have the big zoo. And I love the wolves, you know, and we love to get the wolves howling if possible. Our kids will, you know, howl and talk to them and stuff. And, you know, and, but you see them. But these wolves are cloaked. They're coming by stealth, right? And, and they come to destroy. They don't set out to be false teachers, but then eventually they fall away. Their hearts are hardened. And they're capturing, it says in 2 Timothy 3, 6, um, they creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So you have, you have a false teacher who will capture, who will prey upon somebody who's vulnerable, perhaps a single woman or um, an older woman or, or somebody who's desperate, somebody who's trying to get out from under the guilt of her own sin. And they prey upon that person and they feed into sensuality and make promises and it's very destructive. And it's very important to be bold against that kind of attack. Genesis 3.1, um, the serpent was, listen to how Moses put it in Genesis 3.1, more crafty than any other beast of the field. More crafty. It's public enemy number one. This is what spreads gangrene through the church, upsets whole family by, uh, families by casting seeds of doubt. Now, what's the good news? There's good news. That is that while you have the super highway where all the cars are just streaming down the five, Christians can choose to get off the highway and to go down into the swamp of the narrow road. But we go down there and it's hard, right? Fewer, fewer those who find it, but we get night vision gear from God. We have the ability to recognize what's false, what's errant, and what's true. We do, and that's what Jesus is saying. He, he uses this word recognize twice in verse 16 and verse 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. That's the phrase. The word recognize is the word epigonosco. It means to really see into the issue. So the wolf comes in, knocks on your door, or wants to teach you in a Bible study, or is out there. And um, they're dressed up in their fluffy wool costume. But you see the tail sticking out the back from under the costume. That's a wolf. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right. The truth makes the lies stick out. That's how it is. That's how it is. There's unbiblical ideologies that are creeping into the church in mainstream that, are, that look really good. The whole social justice movement looks really good. The, the whole racial reconciliation movement looks really good. But there are people who are saying, look, if you don't buy into our program or our ideology or what the world is talking about, then you're turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to the true gospel. And the saving gospel is not about racial reconciliation at its core. The saving gospel at its core is about being reconciled to Christ because we are all sinners. The whole world, all the ethnicities, all the social groups, poor, rich, slave, free, all the races, if you say that as ethnicities, all of us are coming under one gospel. There's, the, the bifurcation in our world is not between the races. That's a superficial outcome of people hating each other. But the reason they hate each other is because unreconciled sin. That's the issue. Satan wants you to think about this up here. He wants, to, wants us to strategize all kinds of social justice movements, all kinds of rallies, all kinds of programs, all kinds of penance. He wants that to be the issue, not the real issue, which is the real breakdown between you're either on the wide road, 8 billion people wide, 
or the narrow little thin road that's to heaven. And if you're on that road, then we're all the church together. And that's where you have true community, true fellowship, true love, and true oneness. That's where it happens. Satan is trying to flip all that on its head for us to ignore the true issue, which is we need to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That's the issue. And that's the message. Um, people, when you, uh, you know, try to get them to explain things like critical race theory and, and where they're coming from, you'll have all kinds of mixed responses. There's the equity and equality issue um, that turns into com- confirmation bias where somebody is looking for something in sound bites in media and they just see it more and more and more. They go, look, it's all here. It's all in the social media. This is what we're all talking about. It's what one preacher called uh, pancake, thin sliced pancake thinking. As opposed to really thinking deeply and connecting things to truth and scripture and getting down to bedrock about what really is going on, people are just pancake thinking with little Twitter sound bites and, and looking at things that way and being upset by that. And confirmation biases where you're looking for something and then it's just confirmed over and over. You just click, click, click. Okay, there it is. It must be real. It must be true. You ask people to explain themselves and they won't. They'll say, look, you know, if you're not bothered like I'm bothered, then you have the problem. You need to educate yourself. You'll hear that. They try to put it back on you. My education is the word of God. My education is the word of God. We love one another because of the word of God. The word of God taught me how to love people. Um, Jesus tells me how to love. Jesus tells me how to love humankind. Jesus tells me there's really two races. You're either under Christ and his headship or you are under the Adamic Adam-cursed race. You're either on the narrow road or the wide road. It's one or the other. You're either part of my family because of Jesus or you need to be part. You need to be evangelized into my family so we can be in this family together. My education comes from the word of God, how we got here, where we're going, what really matters. It's not chiefly, divisions are not chiefly and first about ethnicity. It's about how we have dealt with our sin and how we've been reconciled to Christ. It's not enough just not to hate people. We are commanded, watch this, and this is what the world doesn't get. We're commanded to have love shed abroad in our hearts for each other. It's not okay to just be neutral or nice or, or, or sorry. It's I love you. You are my brother, sister in Christ. And, and what we're talking about is Jesus, not how we're like getting along with each other. Does it really have to get that difficult? I mean, I I just had uh, my brother, who's a pastor in Georgia, just became a grandfather, and his daughter married um, a Korean man who's the son of an elder in his church, and they just had their baby together, um, Lily. And, you know, she's, I guess you'd call her biracial or whatever. She's Lily, and she's my grandniece. Oh, my. Okay, anyway, yeah. Right? Right? I mean, we're in the body of Christ together. How, how great is that? And we need to be clear. We need to be clear. How do we recognize things? Well, you recognize things by moving beyond the sound bites. Proverbs 16, 2, you know, everybody's right in their own eyes. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Everybody is thinking through their own truth, right? This is my truth. That's all postmodernism. But the Lord weighs the spirit. 
The Lord's, God's word tells us what's true. Proverbs 18, 17, the one who states his case first, that person's right until the other comes and cross-examines. The word is what cross-examines us and, and fills out the whole story as we hear all of what's going on. The gentle encouragement is that we recognize what's going on, and that means we're on the narrow road. We're not on the superhighway. We have the night vision um, in the swamp. We recognize by fruit what is going on. Notice the simplicity of how we see things. Uh, we, we recognize them by their fruits. We're not supposed to go up to the tree and say, you know, I think it's healthy because the trunk looks good. No, you're supposed to look at the fruit. And it, if you open it up like I did as a little boy, I would open up little peaches or whatever, you know, and, and, and then it would be nasty. I would think this is a good piece of fruit, right? And then I would open it up as a little boy and it would just be rancid smelling and then maggots would be inside eating it out. Now, that's bad fruit. That's bad fruit, bad tree. Uh, what's that tree good for? Firewood now, right? I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. It's as simple as that. Don't be seduced by the false teacher. Don't, don't have the conversation with the devil, right? You know, don't be Adam and Eve going, you know, did God really say, right? You know, and, and yeah, I don't know. Maybe he didn't. Maybe we can eat the fruit, right? He said, no, examine. I'm mixing metaphors, but we examine the fruit. How do you know a false teacher? For a false teacher, not by how they look or how they carry themselves. You, you know a false teacher by what they teach, by what they say, and whether it lines up with scripture, and by their character, what they do. That's, that's how you're evaluating whether someone is of God or not. Somebody is speaking for God if they're speaking truth that is scriptural, and someone who's twisting it is false. What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, it, it looks like asking the question, are grapes going to come from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? It's discerning what things do not fit together. I hate to trivialize, but it's the Sesame Street, you know, which one of these things is not like the other one. It's, it's something just, oh, this doesn't feel right. They're saying something doesn't feel right. What would that be like? It's when preaching um, says you're generally good instead of we're generally bad because of our sin. It's when preaching says, I wonder if there really is alien life on other planets. When all of redempted history, redemption history centers on earth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? God is going to create the new heavens and the new earth, not the new everything else. That's, that's, not, that's not the central idea. When someone looks at Mother Earth and sees God as creation instead of God through creation, when professors preach theistic evolution versus literal creation, science is superseding biblical truth. Oh, well, maybe things evolved for a while before sin came into the world and sin brought death. How does that even work, right? And yom in Genesis 1, that can't mean 24-hour literal days because how could God make all that in a, a supernaturally? miraculously that's how when pulpits push doing good instead of being good um, and being good instead of only god is good and knowing him by grace when hell is nebulous and a maybe not eternal when you can find god through dreams and not by gospel preaching people say well how will they hear well paul asked that question in in romans how shall they hear unless a preacher is sent right the beautiful feet of good news going out. That's how they hear. It is that simple. The Bible is meant to be understood. It is that clear. 
When other religions have a back door into heaven, that's wrong. It's only one way to heaven. Christians are little gods. No, we worship the one true God. When scripture is one of the holy books, not the holy inspired book of truth. When parts of the Bible are more inspired than other parts of the Bible in people's mixed up version of census plenier. When the Bible erases, watch this. When Bible translations erase male pronouns. That's, that's a warning light. You go, yeah, but in the context, doesn't that mean they and humankind? I mean, yeah, but God chose to write it a particular way for a particular reason. So we either take his words in the way that he wrote them and work from that to truth, to understanding the truth, rather than importing and implying contextualized false translations. That's false teaching. When preachers quip, who are you to judge when... Um, Whether or not Mormons go to heaven. Who are you to judge? Well, the Bible says it's through Christ who is God. And the Mormons don't believe Jesus is God. When When Christians water down the sting of immorality. When males are confused as females and vice versa. This is a problem. Uh, When the conservative, uh, the historically conservative political party begins to affirm Caitlyn Jenner. Do I have your attention yet? As the best option um, for the party. I mean, well, at least even as a male, um, he has gone all the way to being female. So that's better. Are we crazy? No, we're not. We don't have to be. We recognize the difference between truth and error, right and wrong, light and darkness. We stand for truth, for the gospel. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is who we are. You know, the... The person that comes in and through the family that's the predator, that is the most unlikely person to harm your children, right? That enters in. They look fine. They were all good. And then they harm your children. That's the dynamic of this text within the church. The person looks fine. They seem just fine, but they're really not. I'm reading a book called Fault Lines by Vody Bauckham. I respect him greatly. He's been up to Alaska. I've actually gotten to meet him a couple times. He's in um, Zambia, Africa. Now he was a pastor in Texas for a long time. In Zambia, Africa with uh, Conrad Mbewe, who's uh, a person I've met a few times and spent some time with as well. Respect him a ton. Uh, so Vody is, uh, he was trained in sociology in his undergraduate, and he's taken that, and then he's got all kinds of theological um, acumen and gifting and put it together in a very conservative book. I would recommend it to you, but he basically, it's called Fault Lines. He basically says that the critical race um, theory is now a new cult religion. So critical theory is the cos- is what's the cosmology? Critical theory. What's original sin? Racism. What's the law? Anti-racism. What's the gospel? Radical reconciliation. Who are the martyrs? Trayvon, Mike, George, and Brianna. Who are the priests of, of CT, uh, um, CRT? Oppressed minorities. What's the means of atonement? Catch this. Reparations. What's the new birth within this movement? Wokeness. That's the new birth. That's when you get saved in this religion. Liturgy is to lament. Canon, their canon or their Bible is critical social justice theology. What are their theologians? Who are they? D'Angelo, she wrote White Fragility. I've read it. Kendi, Brown, Crenshaw, McIntosh. What's the catechism? What do you say? You say their names. You, you revere these people. Anti-racism in this regard, listen to this, offers no clear salvation. There's no real reconciliation that can go on in this. Only perpetual penance. 
You can only keep feeling sorry or sad. You can never fully reconcile. That's not Jesus. That's not the church. That's not the gospel. But that is influencing the church abroad. And we just need to be aware of it. You just need to know. Because people will be hurt by this. We need true reconciliation, true love in the body of Christ. Verses 16 through 19 make things very simple. Grapes don't come from thorn bushes or figs and figs from thistles. It just doesn't happen. A false teacher does not preach clear, whole, understandable truth. It's always partial truths or twisted truths. It's always twisted, never untwisted. It's not clear about God's glory, sufficiency of scripture, God being all-powerful, sovereign, people being saved by grace, hard truths, irrefutable doctrine like sin, wrath, eternal punishment, grace, truth, Christ. These are all twisted. If you don't hear those things, then listen for false teaching because it's coming. A good tree is opposite, verse 17, from a rotten tree. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a rotten or the diseased tree bears bad fruit. This is the exact same way of dealing with wolves. You don't want to look at the tree. You want to look at the fruit and work backwards. I am notorious for keeping a refrigerator full because I don't throw things away very well. And my kids have pointed that out. You know, the saran wrap is, it's done, dad. It's done. Read the cell by date, throw it away. Bacteria has grown. A farm has created, you know, this is a science lab, throw it away. We're not going to reheat that. And that's how we need to view things. There, things are rottenness around us, and we need to avoid these things. Look at the fruit, not the tree. Don't be seduced by the dead tree that needs to be wholly thrown in the fire. Could be an implication of unrepentant false teachers who are thrown away as the unfruitful branch into the fire. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit. It just can't do it. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire is burned like John fifteen six, with the branch that does not bear fruit. It's thrown away. It withers. It's burned. In ninth grade, I remember I, I went to um, the Virginia Beach school system in junior high and I had a friend, and his name was Jeff, and I was Jeff, and we both surfed, and we were both buddies growing up together. And uh, he was in a class under a ninth-grade teacher um, who was the teacher. who was a social studies teacher named Mr. Miller. Mr. Miller was a good-looking guy, and a lot of the kids, he was kind of a classroom favorite. I never was under him, but I had heard through the, you know, through the chatter that he taught a world religion section and basically promoted the idea that all religions lead to God. And people loved it there because we were in the Bible Belt, in the buckle of the Bible Belt in Virginia Beach. And so a lot of people were under Christian guilt there. And so a lot of students really loved to hear a message where, oh, any religion can really get to God, so you'll be fine. I'm in gym class later. Jeff comes up to me, and we're standing there, and he looks at me, and we were both raised in strong Christian families with straight-up gospel given to us our whole lives. And he said, you know, what if we really believe, he had come out of that class from under Mr. Miller, what if we believe um, in Christianity really because our parents have basically brainwashed us to believe that. The seed of doubt was sown. Um, he grew up, I grew up. I you know, went into the ministry. He went into um, drugs and, and the surfing culture and got DUIs and 
had prison time and my parents ended up transferring to his parents' church. They became good friends together. Um, Jeff's mom started to show signs of cancer and then suddenly digressed and died. And Jeff had to watch his mom die and he watched her die alone because, or he was alone because he did not know the Lord. This seed was sown by that teacher and he doubted God. And it, it, it stole away what had been sown in his heart. The seed of the word of God was snatched by Satan by a false teacher in a school that taught him something that allowed him to doubt God. And my parents, as they grieved uh, the loss of this friend in the church, they were there at the funeral. And Jeff came up to my dad and just hugged him. Why? Because it, it just gets, everything gets brought to its kernel seed reality, truth, error, righteousness, lawlessness, heaven or hell. And my prayer is that this young man, this friend of mine from boyhood, childhood, would know Christ through that loss. But if you don't have Christ, you have, you have nowhere to go. Well, you say, well, that happens out there. These theories, these ideologies are out there. Well, what about inside the church? Well, if you read my blog this week, I um, did some work out of Third John on this. There are bullies that come into the church that change the culture of a church, that step on the air hose of the vitality of missions in the church. And if you read this one chapter, 15 verse book of the Bible, at the end of your Bible, you'll recognize that just like Romans and just like Ephesians, this thing is power packed. It's, it's like a little guy that packs a big punch. Third John's talking about missions and about welcoming the visitors, welcoming the people who are going out, giving the gospel. And, and John is also at the same time shutting down a bully in the church that's named Diotrephes. That's what Third John is about. If you get those two concepts, you got the book. And it's an awesome little study. John is aged. He's at the end of his life. He's pre-exile, pre-Patmos. Um, and, but this is the end of his life as a, you know aged man. I'd be AD 85 or something like that. And he's writing to churches that he no doubt had missionary influence and planted. He's like a father figure, a father pastor to these churches spread throughout Asia Minor. And he's writing to deal with these two issues. Well, the reason I bring it up is there are bullies in the church. And he's dealing with this one named Diotrephes, verse 9 brings up, um, who's manifesting, domineering, controlling um, attributes. First Timothy 3.3, 3, you can't be a drunkard, you can't be violent, you have to be gentle, you can't be quarrelsome. Titus 1.7, you can't be arrogant, you can't be quick-tempered, you can't be a drunkard or violent. First Peter 5.3, you can't be domineering of those who are in your charge. You can't do that sort of thing. It steps on the air hose of missions in the church. And I was reading an article that's an expose about a very popularly known um, pastor who who basically plunged from fame, plunged from notoriety, plunged himself from influence because he was arrogant, because he was a bully, and he had some characterological issues, some plagiarism issues, and some things were going on in his life. And it, it wrecked his ministry and reputation. Well, he re, um, re-upped at a smaller church situation that now has been growing. And, um, but now there's an expose that he's added again and he's controlling. He's making volunteers um, sign non-compete clauses that if they leave the church, they can't tell what they learned about the church from the inside. He's got people on watch lists that can't come on the campus or not. It's sort of a, you know, a very tense 
situation that's going on and he's, he's seen as bullying and angry and, and swearing and these things. Um, it's, it's scary, but it's just verbal abuse and being controlling. Well, does that happen? Is that a real thing? Well, it was happening all the way back in the early church and it happens today. Look at verse nine. This is what Paul says. Verse eight, he says, therefore, we ought to support people like these. He's talking about those who went out for the sake of the name, the missionaries, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. Then he says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, here's what's wrong, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if you, if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, not content that, um, with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. What's he doing? Number one, he's putting himself first. Pride. Pride comes from the fall. Satan plunged out of heaven. Chief angel. I will, I will, I will. I want to be like God. I want to be better than God. He's out. That's a satanic temptation that a novice who's put into leadership too soon falls into. They feel very insecure. They feel out of their depth. And so they use business practices and, and whatever they can to try to maintain their position of power and influence. He's putting himself first. Secondly, does not acknowledge authority. John, as the apostle, is really the last representative of the New Testament being written. Once John dies, it's really synonymous with the word of God um, that, that you're bucking authority. Third, divisive. He's gossiping. He's talking wicked nonsense, verse 10. He's dogging out John to undermine the messenger, to undermine the message and the accountability. Fourth, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He won't, he won't welcome the missionaries. That's threatening to him for whatever reason. Won't welcome him. And worse, not only does he shun the missionaries, he stops those who want to welcome the brothers. He stops people in the church that want to fellowship with the missionaries. That's the pathology is horrible in the heart of someone like this. He puts those verse 10 who want to out of the church. He's excommunicating people, quenching the Holy Spirit in a church because he's self-absorbed. He's wanting to be first place. He's falling prey to the novice temptation of being puffed up with the conceit, falling into the condemnation of the devil. One weakness leads to another. It's a controller. It's a controller. Say, are people like this in the church? They are. When you're not supposed to be in leadership, you are incited to self-protection, avoiding accountability at all costs, undermining accountability at all costs, putting people out of the church to avoid, to avoid, to avoid. What do you do with somebody like this? Verse 10 tells you, you bring it up publicly. That's what John promises to do. Do you see that? So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. That's a promise. We have to be bold. The only way you can free the church from a false teacher is to confront the church, to confront the bully in the church, to confront it, to bring it up graciously with truth, but to bring it up for the sake of health. Controllers will suck the life out of a church and damage people spiritually. When the church is healthy, people not only come and want to come, they want to stay. When the church is being harmed, they want to leave. And some people can't leave and don't feel like they can leave. So we have Jesus calling us to choose a side. Are you on the side of Jesus or the side of the wide road? Which side are you on? 
Listen, we have to be alert, not only to false teachers, but to our own, the state of our own hearts. Where are you? Are you siding with Jesus or are you siding with the world? That's it. Jesus is the perfect model of selflessness, humility. He's the leader who was absolutely discerning. In the first wilderness, Adam fell. The second wilderness, Jesus prevailed against Satan. And now guess what? You're in the third wilderness. This is the world we live in, and we have the Bible, and we have the truth. We're going to side with Jesus.